In this episode of Startups of the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about 19 questions to ask when considering bootstrapping versus raising funding. This is Startups of the Rest of Us 411. Welcome to Startups of the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So where this week, sir? Well, there was a, a book recommendation that you had given a while ago called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I've been, I'd commented that I had bought the book, but hadn't read it yet. And so I've been kind of diving into that a little bit. And it's, I find it fascinating, probably more so from a historical perspective, because Ben Horowitz, who's the author, he's talking about his journey through the kind of startup after he had left PayPal and, you know, running this other company. And then they basically only had one customer that was providing like 90% of the revenue and basically spun that business off into a, its own separate entity and got rid of a, a bunch of assets with it. And then talks about how he kind of built up the company from there. What I find fascinating about it is that the the new company is called Opsware. And I remember back in those days that when I was doing like sales demos and presentations and stuff, I was actually in some cases competing against Opsware. Hmm, that's a trip. Yeah, that that book is, uh, it is brutal. Have you finished it? I have not, no. It is so, I was so stressed. Like, it's a good book. I don't know if I could listen to it again because what he has to go through to grow and then keep this company from basically going under and then he sells it for a billion or multiple billions of dollars. And then he starts Andreessen Horowitz, right? That part's not in the book, but he talks a little bit about it, but he is the Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz. But yeah, that the journey, I remember listening to it and being like, yep, I couldn't have done this. I would have imploded. Like it is the hard thing about hard things is, is a good title for it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I do not think that I would have wanted to go through all the stuff that he's gone through, especially like just the the financial challenge of trying to go public. And at the time that he did, right after the economy kind of cratered, and what, what did he say? Like there were like 200 plus IPOs the year before, and then there were like six or 12 or something like that the year that he did it. It's like, wow. It's crazy. Oh, he went public. He didn't get acquired. I, f- I forgot. Well, what the no, idea. he... He went public first and it was in a bad environment. And the reason they went public was because they couldn't get any more investment capital from investors. And then it was like a bunch of years later, like 2007 or something like that, where they ended up selling to HP for, I think, one or $2 billion. Got it. That was my memory, but I'd, I'd forgotten they went public. Oh, it is just, it's agonizing. I mean, it's that, it really is the shoot for the billion dollar exit, you know, need to be a several hundred million dollar revenue journey raising venture capital and all that stuff. And a lot of it just did not sound like something I ever want to experience in my life, you know, even for the payout like that. It's just, I don't, I don't think it'd be worth it. Mm -hmm. How about you? What's going on this week? Well, you and I just had a conversation before this episode started recording and we are evaluating potentially having sponsorships on startups for the rest of us. So if you are a a company, whether you're a startup or, you know, if you think that that you would be interested in reaching the startups for the rest of us audience, which is, it's a lot of bootstrappers, but it's also a lot of people running six and seven figure businesses. Drop us a line at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com and just put sponsor or sponsorship in the subject line. And uh, we will talk about it. Obviously, as a listener, we've been doing this for eight years and, and we 
And we appreciate the trust that you put in Mike and I to produce high quality content and to deliver value to you. And so we have no intention of quote unquote, screwing up the podcast by adding a bunch of sponsorship roles in the thing and interrupting your flow. But we are at a point where, you know, it does cost us money and it does cost us time away from our businesses to do this. And so we're just evaluating it. It's, it's a preliminary thing. Definitely haven't made our mind up about it, but we do want to explore this as an option. So again, that email address is questions at servicerestfoods.com and just put sponsorship or sponsors in the subject line and we'll take a look at it. And again, we'll just uh, kind of evaluate how things go. And uh, just to reiterate what Rob had said, like, you know, we appreciate that you guys listening and we don't want to screw up the whole thing. So I think like a lot of things that we've done at MicroConf over the years, I think it's just kind of a play it safe approach, but at the same time, look for ways to change things to make things better. Yeah, we've experimented a lot with things at MicroConf over the years, and some have worked, some haven't. But one thing that I think we've done a good job of is recognizing when they work and don't, and basically changing it up when things don't. So even if we try it, if it suddenly becomes a, a kludge or something, I could, you know, I could imagine pivoting. So today we're we're going to be running through an article by a listener and commenter named Don Gooding. And the title of his article is Bootstrapping versus Venture Capital, 19 Questions to Ask. But what I find interesting about the article is it's not just about venture capital. It is about angel investment as well. But before we get there, um, we had a comment from Adam on episode 406. And 406 was uh, five episodes ago when you and I discussed, should bootstrappers raise money was the title of the episode. And Adam said, I'm so glad you jumped in, Mike, and said something about Rob hitting 21K MRR saying that it wasn't a fair comparison. Because I believe I was saying drip hit 21K MRR quickly, and if it took me four years to get there, that I would have shut it down, right? And you said, well, that's not a fair comparison because you're you're in a different place. And if you're building something on the side, maybe it is four years you know, to that point. Back to Adam, he says, I'm still trying to hit 21K MRR after four years, but I don't think I'm failing at what I'm doing. Maybe an episode on what you think the growth is that people should be aiming for. This was a good episode. A follow-up question to Mike would be, why have you or have you not fun-strapped Bluetech? Oh, that's a, a, a good question that I don't have a good answer for. <laughs> right. It's something you've evaluated, I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it's something that... So I've, I've looked at it a couple of times, and I've had a few conversations privately with people that I know who have raised money and kind of asked them what their take on it was, what their experience was. After going through it, what were the drawbacks? What would they have done differently? And I got a sense that it was going to be rather complicated and time-consuming, and I didn't have the time to spend on it. So I continue to kind of look at it and continue to think about it, but it's not something where I've said, yeah, I definitely want to do that and I'm all in and I, I'm going to dedicate the next X weeks or months or whatever going out and raising funding. I probably spent a lot more time working on getting Blue Tick to a better place. So I think I've been kind of uh, open about the fact that they're, early on I hired a bunch of contractors to build a lot of the core infrastructure for Blue Tick, and quite frankly, it was not done very well. So there's a lot of things that are generally screwed up, and it makes it difficult to make changes. And I would prefer to move fast if I can help it, but the problem is a lot of the architecture and the, the choices were, that were made at the time make that difficult. So I have a hard time pulling away from those things and doing some of the cleanup work to basically make myself be able to move faster. Because I feel like if I had like a pile of money, I would feel obligated to 
expand things a lot quicker and maybe even more than I'm possibly comfortable with. And I just know that there are certain parts of the app that if I were to dump 50 or 100 users on it all at once, it's not going to scale very well. There's certain processes that need to run and it's, and it's just not going to take a large influx of people very well. It can do it. I just, I probably have to tweak a couple of settings to make it happen, but I'm not real comfortable doing that. So I think it's partly out of a obligation, partly out of complexity and the time that I would have to spend on it. So you have technical debt already. <laughs> yes. I think you have technical debt as soon as you write a single line of code. <laughs> well, not if it's fully unit tested, though, you know? It's like, I think, right, there's that, I don't know if it's a joke or if it's truly the definition, but it's like legacy code is code that is not, you know, highly unit tested. And yeah, I mean, you have a little bit of technical debt, but to hear that it's hard to make changes, is like that's a real bummer to hear, given how early stage you are and that you're a technical founder. You know, that's the whole point of us being technical founders. It's like, that's our that's our skill set. Like, we shouldn't have that. Maybe we should caveat that a little bit more. It's not that it's hard to make changes. It's that I feel uncomfortable making changes to certain places because they're not as well unit tested as I would like them to be. And the software does a lot. So there's some changes I'll just push out and it's just like, hey, this is a front end UI change. It's not that big a deal. But then when you get into things like how mailboxes are stored and how the data is synchronized, I'm real hesitant to make changes to those because there is in one particular case I can think of off the top of my head, there is literally no way for me to unit test it whatsoever. It's hard to justify going in there and just like making whole scale changes that would make things easier because I know that it's working. And if it breaks, it does a lot of work every second. And it's it could, things could go seriously sideways very, very quickly. The new build server I put in place a couple of weeks ago would actually make rolling back pretty easy. But then I'd have to go through and like figure out what in the code broke. And again, it's just it's not easy to, to unit test that piece. Yeah, I feel like next time, should we just build, I don't know, simple project management that just pulls things in and out of databases? Is that no no connections to any external sources and no queues? I don't want any queues. I want everything synchronous. Yeah, that's I, and honestly, like that's part of it is like the, the queues and stuff that I have to deal with, the queue processing, storing data, and you know, like being able to filter certain things out. And oh, somebody deleted this piece of data, and yeah, it's just it kind of sucks to have like things moving while you're also writing the code on it. I'm sure you went through this with drip. It's like, there's so much, That's fast, I know, yeah. I know it's like, it's like open heart surgery. It feels like sometimes. Yeah. Every time we, we did anything meaningful to scheduling or, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff that's so easy to screw up. So, and if you can figure out a way to smoke or not smoke tests, but to get unit tests on that stuff, because the fact that you, you don't feel comfortable making changes to part of your app, that's going to be a hindrance forever. It's never going to, it's not going to get better. That's only going to get worse, especially as you, if it grows, if you start hiring other people, that's a big red zone there that I think you need to, you know, think about remedying early. Yeah. And I, the thing is, like, there's a component that I'm using where to get into the technical details of it, it's a there's a C-sharp class and I have to serialize it. And in order to do that, in order to store the data and the problem is that they've marked it as sealed, which means I can't inherit from it, which means I can't really do anything with it. So I've been working with them to try and figure out, like, is there a way that I can get an interface for this or something like that so that I can create it? Because they don't have a public constructor for it. And because it's a sealed class, it's encapsulated in the assembly and I can't inherit from it either. So 
I really don't have any other options other than like kind of faking it, which is what I've done so far. I basically have this my own object that very, very closely mimics theirs, but it's not perfect. And that's the problem is like, I've found a few edge cases here and there, and it's just, it's kind of scary. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll come up with a, a, a solution sooner rather than later. But, you know, I've been working with them for probably at least six months on it. So one minute while I update my spreadsheet, let's see, apps to not start as an unfunded single founder, email marketing provider, a cold email outreach. Yeah, the <laughs> list is getting longer and longer, right? It's like, these things don't seem that complicated when yep. you look at them from the outside. I'm going to build an ESP. This is, this is going to be a piece of cake, you know, said Eric and I before we wrote code. <laughs> I think anything where you have like an outside dependency that you don't completely control or have like complete access to like that's where it gets hard or you're relying on like events coming into the system and you have to process do like data processing on them all right well let's uh keep moving on with this episode our second comment on episode 406 was from don gooding and he linked over to a few articles he's written and one of which we're going to discuss today his comment was i write a lot about bootstrapping versus venture capital or angel funding there are definitely a bunch of issues to consider both early and later. I hope you'll consider the following posts helpful and not spammy. And I do consider them helpful. He links to three different articles. His blog is fourcolorsofmoney.com, and that's four spelled out, F-O-U-R. Don, if you're listening, register the number four colors of money and also redirect that over because I tried that as well and it, it just goes nowhere. So... He linked to the first article, which is Bootstrapping versus Venture Capital, 19 Questions to Ask. We're going to talk about that today. He also linked to another article called The Bootstrap to Funding Pivot Playbook, which is about bootstrapping first and then raising funding later. And he talks about revenue financing in that one. And then his last article is revenue-based financing, five different options and he, he walks through them, which is pretty interesting. His site is called Four Colors of Money because he looks at bootstrapping, he looks at grants, he looks at debt and equity, and those are the, the four colors. So he's obviously, you know, having read through it, pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. So again, we will include those three links in the show notes. You could always go back to the comment on episode 406 if you wanted to see his full comment. But today we are going to talk through his article, Bootstrapping versus Venture Capital, 19 Questions to Ask. We won't have time to go through all 19 questions, but the idea here is to think about whether you can and should bootstrap or whether you need to raise funding. So his first question is, how much of your own capital do you have? Do you have a way to self-fund it? Self-funding and bootstrapping sound like they're the same thing, but they are different. Bootstrapping is truly having almost no money. And, you know, a few hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars, and then growing a business based purely on its revenue and profits. Self-funding is if I had $100,000 in the bank or $200,000 in the bank, or I had another business that was throwing off money or another income stream that was throwing off money that I could then take and start my next business from. Self-funding is a lot of what I did. So in the early, early days, I bootstrapped everything right out of consulting revenue, but spent very little money. Then the more business revenue I had, I stayed consulting during the day full time. And I took that business revenue and used it to self-fund the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And each of them got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it took me a long time to get from having .NET Invoice doing $300 a month 10 years later, even longer, 11 years later, you know, it's, it's drip 
doing seven figures a year and having an exit. And I didn't have to raise funding during that time because I self-funded, but it took me a lot longer than if I had come up with an idea and just raise funding early on. So those are that's kind of how I think about the trade-offs is I believe that it takes longer if you're going to self-fund unless you do have a, a rich uncle or, or a trust fund. But his first question here to think about is how much capital on your own do you have that you can invest in the business? And I feel like this is more of a, a runway question because um, the money itself, like you, you either have to, when the business itself is generating money, like how much is left over for you to live versus how much are you going to be able to put back into the business? And if you're running a business on the side or nights and weekends and stuff like that, then you presumably have a full-time job and that is keeping your self alive and keeping your family fed while the business is like getting the rest of the profits. But at some point things are going to transition and you have to kind of make some choices about like what your future looks like. Do you have enough money to be able to spend like a thousand dollars on AdWords or something like that to test out a market? You may even need that money early on. Like and that kind of comes down to like the fundamental question that he's got here is how much of your own capital do you have? And do you have, can you afford to run experiments early on? Is it, do you have more time on your hands or do you have more money? And this is kind of getting more at the, uh, the money side of the equation. If you have plenty of time, if your timeline is five years, you can take as long as you want to do most things. Certain industries, of course, will move very quickly and competitors will swoop in. Not ideal if you're trying to take five years to do it, but certain ones you can do that. So like uh, I think Patrick McKenzie with Bingo Card Creator, he slowly built that up and nobody else wanted to go into that market because there wasn't a lot there, but he was still able to make a, a pretty good business out of it. It just took a really long time to do it. And then his next few questions look at ways that if you don't have the money to self-fund, ways to look around and see if you can essentially raise funds, but not from venture capitalists or angels. His second question is how likely it is you can raise funds from family or friends. Third question is, can your product support a Kickstarter style campaign, which I believe a lot of people overlook. I mean, info products and even some software, not B2B, would have to really be B2C in general can use uh, Kickstarter as well as obviously physical products would be a great way to do it. And his fourth one is, will customers pay you well in advance of you delivering your product or service? So can you essentially pre-sell it? And his fifth one actually is, you know, does it qualify for a grant? And I don't think that applies to most of, of our listeners nor any business I've ever started, but it is, you know, one of the colors of money that he talks about. You know, I've thought about this kind of crowdfunding and I've heard people kind of gone down that path, not on Kickstarter, but um, someplace else. I can't remember the name of it. It's like Indiegogo or something? I think, it was, yeah, it was Indiegogo. And um, the general consensus was that people are much more willing to fund like individual ventures and things where there's like a physical product. But when it comes to software, people are not particularly interested. And maybe that's just because it's kind of self-selecting where the people who are building those generally are targeting them at businesses versus if you were going to do something where it's like, oh, this is a way to, I don't know, organize baseball cards or something like that. Like if it's something that has a, a wider appeal and it's a non-business use, if you find the hobbyists who are into that or the people who are prosumers, so to speak, they're going to be into it and they would probably fund it. But if you were to try and create like a CRM or something like that, who's going to fund that? Like, I can't think of anyone who would want to willingly throw in money unless it was for their own business, at which point it's not really for the greater good, so to speak. Totally. And, you know, when I look back at the 173 Kickstarter projects that I've backed, 
Mike, oh, did geez. you hear that? Did you hear what I just oh, said? Oh my God. <laughs> oh no, it's not even, that's the number of successful projects I've backed. <laughs> there are 12 unsuccessful, I have 185 Kickstarter projects. Oh, the humanity, Mike. It's oh, so wow. embarrassing. So embar- I just love Kickstarter, but I don't think I've backed a single piece of software. You know, it's all, I mean, my taste, it's a lot of, a lot of graphic novels. It's a lot of tabletop games. It's a lot of like little kind of tech gadgets. There was a Kano, the open source computer that I could work with, you know, teach my kids how to put computers together and do that stuff. So a lot of it is like some learning and some teaching and some gadgetry and stuff. And I I think that my gist is that my tastes are not uncommon, you know, so I I do agree that um, trying to launch a B2B project on Kickstarter would be hard, but there are a lot of listeners to us who are not just trying to do B2B software, you know, as we've, as we've talked about. So, so I'm going to skip over a couple of his questions, but another couple questions that I think are, are interesting to ask because they imply that you should probably raise some type of at least angel and potentially go after venture funding. One is, do you think it will take more than a hundred thousand dollars and or longer than one year to develop your product or service to the point that it is generating revenue? Another question is, does your business have network effects where only one or two companies will end up with 80 or 90% of the market, right? Because that's, some, that's a super protectable, right? There's a moat around that product or, or around that business, and that is something that can very likely be, be fundable. And another question is, do you have large capital equipment or other fixed investment needs that aren't debt financeable? So those three would obviously imply that you probably need to raise uh, some kind of funding. Well... I, I look at those things as potential disqualifiers as well, because like if it's a network effects type of business where only a couple of companies are going to end up with a large percentage of the market, to me, that's kind of a disqualifier unless you're going to go raise money, and which I guess is kind of what he's saying. But you have no idea if, if other people are going to enter in there the, who have a lot more clout than you. And that's why you should probably go raise funding if you're going to go for something like that. But you can also look at that particular thing and say, well, this is a disqualifier for me because, and I'm just not going to go in that direction because I don't want to raise money. Another good one I like that he asked is, do you have potential customers that will see your small size as a risk? For example, a potential career limiting decision. In other words, if you're selling to banks, large institutions, they're going to require that you have some kind of like backing, right? I mean, you, I shouldn't say require, they're going to be unlikely to go with a, a single founder building software out of his or her garage. So I remember talking with someone at Gumroad actually, because Gumroad was kind of bootstrapped early on and they raised a big round. I believe it was 7 million, if my memory serves me correct. And I was saying, why did you raise the round? And he said, well, we wanted to become a credit card processor. And to actually process credit cards, you need a bunch of money in the bank. They just won't let a bootstrapper do that, you know, or a self-funded company do it. So I think that's, you know, definitely a case if you're trying to start a Stripe or, you know, even a Gumroad, which seems like it could be a bootstrappable company, there may be a case where you need to to kind of pony up and, and raise a little bit of money. Yeah. I mean, that's just a social proof or credibility factor. I mean, if you've got people who have been willing to invest $7 million in you, then it serves to the banks as like, oh, these people have convinced these other seemingly smart people to give him $7 million. So clearly they're onto something and they know what they're doing. It doesn't mean that that's true. It just means that that's what their perception is. So you're really just playing off of their perceptions. But I think that there's certainly situations where you can either skirt that or 
use it to your advantage where like for like a relationship or something like that. If the company that you're going after, like you get a, an introduction into them, that way you're not going in completely cold. And if you can get those introductions from somebody that they trust, then that's going to help out a lot. So that's a place where if you go into like different reseller channels and there's lots and lots of tens of thousands of resellers across the world that their sole business is to go in and sell software to other businesses. And there's a bunch of large uh, value-added resellers uh, like Dell and HP and companies like that where they have like entire channel programs set up such that they'll go into and work with small businesses or they will escort small businesses into a deal in order to provide the credibility and then everything goes down on their paperwork. That's how Dell and HP have like massive uh, services businesses. And it's because they have all the relationships already. They have sales fields reps. They walk in because they have a relationship or they can just make a phone call and say, hey, I'm your your Dell rep and I'd like to come in and talk to you. And then they talk to you and find out what your problems are. And then they escort a small partner in the door. And if you can get some of those relationships, you can basically get escorted in and you don't need to have like that $7 million in the bank or you don't have to hire like 300 salespeople or a bunch of a call center in order to do outbound cold calling in order to find your leads. You can leverage those partners to help walk you in. And his last few questions are really surrounding the topic of, are you a fit for angels or VCs? Uh, One is, will your business support growing sales by 50 to 100% annually for five to seven years? Will annual sales reach 15 million to 50 million within that time frame? High growth, right? Another question is, are you comfortable selling your business in order to provide investors their return in five to seven years or maybe earlier for VCs? Are you comfortable sharing control of and decision-making for your company with investors? And is your team plan and pitch in the top 10% of companies seeking financing in your region? All interesting things to think about. I think a lot of those are hard questions to answer too. Like they're very, I'll say they're very personal questions. And depending on the uh, the time of day that somebody asks you, you might also change your mind. So it can be hard to come up with a, a solid answer that you stick with. Yep. No, I would agree. I think these are good things to think about. I think long-time listeners of the podcast will have heard us discuss these types of thought processes before. But if you're kind of new to this whole topic, well, if you're new to the podcast, you probably think, boy, these guys really talk about funding a lot for for a bootstrapping podcast. Because in the past five episodes, we've talked about it twice. But you know, I do think it's becoming it's something that's becoming more and more relevant. I don't expect us to talk about it every five episodes by by any stretch. But I do, you know, since it does seem to be this emerging trend that is kind of coming into the startup space, I think back to 2007 to 2009 or 10, and I was using a lot of email marketing on my info products, and then I started bringing them into software products and kind of the startup space. And it was definitely this emerging trend that I recognized, and I talked about it at BOS. Um, Split testing was something I had seen in info, and people in startups were not doing that. That also became you know a trend that, that took off. There's a bunch of things that have kind of come from different angles I'm even like customer development and and a lot of lean startup stuff was taken from the automotive. It's like you see these trends coming in. And while startups and software have traditionally been VC funded and the trend that you and I have been a part of is this this bootstrapping and self-funding, you know, kind of spearheading it, I would say. I mean, or at least at least part of the, the folks who have really driven it over the past eight plus years. And now I've noticed as I've been talking about for the like I think we look back and the first time I said fun strapping on the podcast was in like 2013 or 2014. 
And it's becoming, you know, more, a little, just a little bit more common for folks to raise around and then not go institutional. So it's just another trend that I see, not infiltrating, because that sounds like it's a bad thing, but just, it's just another trend in the space. And so I think we've, you know, just kind of, kind of continuing the dialogue about it to keep people abreast of, of what we see is happening. Yeah, I mean, things just change over time. So as time goes on, the entire software space has become more and more competitive. I mean, eight years ago when we started podcasting, it was easier to launch products in terms of getting in in front of customers. And now it's just there's lots of competition. So you have to have a more polished product and it's got to be further along. It's got to solve more of the customer's problems because they've got other things that they can pay attention to. So it just makes it, I'll say, a little bit more challenging to launch a product today than it was yesterday and, you know, than it was the day before. And as time goes on, I think that that trend is just going to continue. So I'd say the natural evolution is that, like, you have to have more resources in order to launch something. And it's kind of where the industry is headed. I'm not going to say that that's where it will end up and that's, like, you're always going to have to raise funding in the future because I don't think that that's true. But I do think that there are certain types of businesses where it makes a lot more sense to raise some funds and than it does to to not, especially with certain life circumstances as well. Yep. And the good news is that it's easier, I would say, than than it has been in the past for to get some type of small amount of funding with a lot fewer strings attached than say 10 years ago. On you know, on the flip side, like you said, I believe there's always going to be bootstrapping, you know, and that's not going to go away. There's always going to be folks that are hacking away, launching small software products, and you know, getting a lot of learning, getting some revenue. And I, I still think that will, I think that'll last forever. And I think that's a, a really great thing. I mean, I've said this before, like we live at, a, at an amazing time in history where even 30, 40 years ago, you couldn't do any of this, you know, and a hundred years ago it was even worse. But it's like now someone with some type of technical acumen can basically start like a whole side business and really never leave their house, you know, and have this thing kind of making money while you sleep. Always been the big draw, I think, for a lot of us, you know. Part of it might be the adventure and the act of creating. I think that's a big deal. But to be able to to literally make money from nothing more than your skill and your computer is it's just mind blowing. You know, I, when I think back to being, being a kid, I was, you know, in junior high and high school and it was like, well, I don't really want to work in a cubicle, but what were my options then? Right. In the, in the mid to late eighties, this stuff was just coming about and I didn't, I didn't know much about it, but the fact that we live in this age is like, consider ourselves lucky. I think at the end of the day, when you're trying to evaluate whether or not to raise funds, it's all about that that trade-off of time versus money. Do you have money to burn? Not burn is probably not a great way to put it, but like, do you have money to spend in order to learn quickly, or are you okay taking a much longer time to do it and doing things slow and steady? And you know, based on what your financial situation is like, your personal life, and how much time you have available, that that's going to be different for everyone, and that's what generally governs these types of decisions for most people. Well, I think that about wraps this up for today. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-810-9690. Or you can email it to us at questions at startupsthereustos.com. Our theme music is an excerpt for We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsthereustos.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.